Before we dive into this episode, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please take a second to leave a review. Reviews help boost the show so that others struggling in a toxic workplace can find it. You can also go to my website, ToxicWorkplacePodcast.com, to send me a message. Or if you want to be a guest on the show, you can fill out a submission request. Your story will be completely anonymous. All names are changed to protect the employee and the employer. I'm from a really small town in Nebraska, and I would learned about the job through a guy that I made out with at a rock concert. Was disappointed to hear that he wasn't living in town. He'd said he was just traveling through. He travels and makes money. We exchanged numbers and we texted a little bit afterwards. This is Amanda. At the time of the rock concert, she was about to turn 18 and still deciding on what she wanted to do with her life. The guy from the rock concert, whose name is Jimmy, asked her if she would be interested in joining him on the road for his job. But at the time, she declined. I had plans to go to school in a couple months anyway, so I was like, yeah, I can't really do this travel thing. You know, I didn't really think much about it. I didn't talk to him much after that. And I did the whole, you know, start college in the fall. And I had two jobs on top of that. I was super overwhelmed, quit one of the jobs, still overwhelmed, quit the other job, still overwhelmed and was just looking for a way out. Nobody in my immediate circle really had an exciting life. And I was just really seeking excitement and adventure in my life. I ended up, you know, didn't delete that guy's number, started texting him and asked him again, what do you do? And he said he was selling coupons, which isn't really the full story. So I didn't know much about what I was actually doing. I just knew that I was desperate to get out of my small town, away from my family. So getting on a bus to Texas sounded like a good idea at the time. Hungry for adventure and change, Amanda decided to take a chance and hop on a southbound bus for Texas to join this guy in what she thought to be a traveling sales opportunity. But that long, fateful bus ride would send her on an unforgettable journey where she would work on a magazine crew, a cult-like crew of door-to-door salespeople where she would be exploited and stripped of her sense of identity. My name's Carly, and this is Toxic Workplace, a podcast that gives a platform to those who have survived highly toxic work experiences, only to come out with newfound wisdom and a renewed sense of self. A toxic workplace is more than just the daily grind. It's a soul-crushing experience that will chip away at your sanity until you're about to lose your mind. It's an abusive relationship that's hard to leave. And the longer you stay, the more you lose sight of who you set out to be. So the bus took off late at night from Nebraska. And the whole day leading up to that, I felt sick to my stomach. On the bus, I felt even worse. And it was about a 23, 24-hour bus ride. I could barely sleep. I just felt so disgusting. And I just thought it was normal, you know, anxiety, going somewhere new, not quite knowing what it was, but that I was going to be meeting the cute guy from the rock concert and kind of convinced myself, we must be soulmates because we met in this really crazy, cool way. And now we're going to travel together. But yeah, I got off the bus late at night in Texas and had to wait like a half hour for Jimmy. And at that point, I was still kind of like, am I being punked? I didn't really have a lot of confidence in what I was doing, but no, he showed up and I just remember, granted a rock concert is dark and 
there's a lot of excitement in, in that. And I just thought he was like super cute and attractive at that moment. And then coming face to face with him after several months, I was just like, oh, he was just super unenthusiastic, very flat affect, no expression on his face. And just the way he spoke was very just like monotone. And I'm like, my gosh, like what? <laughs> okay. And two, I was thinking that it was just him and one other person that was doing this travel make money thing. But we arrived at a hotel. I, I don't know what the smell of that place was, but it's still every time I smell, it takes me back to to that motel. But I remember just like arriving there and then suddenly realizing that, oh, there's like seven other guys and only one other girl. So it's not just me and this cute guy I had in my head traveling the country together. It's me and a bunch of other people in this like dingy ass motel. It was like four to five people to a room, two people on each bed and sometimes a person on the floor. I was given the option to either sleep in the room with the guys in a bed with Jimmy or sleep in the other room with the manager, John, and the other lady. So I had my own bed and I took my own bed option because I'm like, okay, that seems safest. But like that room was so cold that night and I was still anxious. I barely slept and that room was just freezing. The training started the night I got there and this was like 10 or 11 o'clock at night when I got to the hotel. I was anxious, sleep deprived and barely even knew any of these people's names, could barely remember them. And it was immediately thrown into all this information, writing down like definitions and not quite knowing how it applied to anything because I still didn't fully know what the nature of the job was. And then also told that I would need to have it all memorized by the next day. So the next day was when I figured out exactly what we were doing, which was going door to door, selling magazines, which was done by lying to people, saying that we were doing a contest to earn points and win a savings bond to either use for college or to start a business, which was a total lie. And we were basically told, make your canvas, so what you told the person at the door, feel real to you. So even though you're not winning this savings bond to go to college or start a business, like what would you study? Or what would you start for a business? So you kind of had to like make it real, but you were obviously lying. You know, I'm going to become a therapist for kids, which is something I really actually wanted to do. I just couldn't, I was overwhelmed by college. It just didn't work for me. And then there's the people who are like, well, you're going to make all this money on this magazine crew and like hope to start a business after the fact if you don't start your own crew. Like there's just all sorts of weird things that you could use to make yourself feel like your canvas wasn't a lie, even though it was. One of the manipulation tactics of this magazine crew was to get its members, including Amanda, to adopt certain beliefs and behaviors that would serve the agenda of the magazine crew. In this case, each member painted a positive image of their future that was believable and felt attainable. Reciting their canvas over and over, door to door, made it feel real and a part of their identity, something to work towards, even though it would never happen because the crew made it hard to get out. Amanda quickly realized that lying or bending the truth was how this crew operated on a daily basis. Two weeks into my job there, it was Thanksgiving and it was nice. We'd get like decent houses around Thanksgiving and Christmas where we could actually cook dinner. But we were grocery shopping and, you know, all the food had gone through the belt and been checked out. And the cashier was about to have John or Jimmy pay. And I was like, hey, guys, there's a turkey on the bottom. 
and they looked disappointed, but they put the turkey up there and bought it. And then when we left, I was, I was like torn into for saying the turkey was there, like they wanted to steal it. Kind of gives you an idea of like who I was before I thought it was okay to lie to people and do all this other stuff. So like the moral injury is in like a person, you kind of go against your morals from before and become somebody who you never, like kind of like your intro, like you never set out to be. Like I never wanted to be a criminal. I never wanted to be an abuser. And that's kind of as you move up the line in that business and you have your new kids under you, you kind of do become the abuser, you know, being dishonest, but also kind of being an abuser in some way because that's what you learn. That's how you learn to survive there. Amanda was young, impressionable, and seeking adventure, which made her an ideal recruit for the magazine crew. The promise of money and travel made sticking it out with the crew more enticing. Besides, there wasn't much going on back in small-town Nebraska, and she felt like she needed to prove to her parents that she was doing something with her life. She was finding more reasons to stay rather than leave, which solidified her decision to stick around. My initial reaction with this whole gig was, okay, I don't know about this, but how am I supposed to get home? I'm several hundreds of miles away. And at that point, like my parents hadn't realized I left yet. I left the note on the cork board in my room and it took them a few days to realize, oh, Amanda hasn't come home yet. And I had like a little track phone with minutes on it. And so they were able to get a hold of me. Most other kids on the crew, nobody actually besides me had a phone. So their parents wouldn't have been able to know. But yeah, my parents called me and sitting there telling me, yeah, I'm in Texas traveling with these people. And and like, I'm lucky to have people who cared enough to be like, get your ass home. But it wasn't until that conversation that I felt like I needed to prove to them that I wasn't just a dumbass who made a bad decision because I felt like I'd be admitting that I failed in some way by saying, yep, this was dumb. Bring me back home. So I felt like I needed to make it work, you know, slowly just kind of went along with everything that everybody else was doing and and then became one of those people that everybody else looked to. But yeah, my parents knowing about it just, you know, they wanted me home, but it actually just kind of solidified my being there more than I wished it would have. The magazine crew was relentless about reaching their sales quota. There was intense pressure to get a certain number of sales per week, which created a highly stressful environment. They emphasized the importance of reaching quotas for personal success and financial gain, which created a sense of obligation and commitment among the members. Additionally, the pay structure involved long hours of door-to-door sales, which resulted in extremely low earnings. But the managers distracted crew members from the low wages by emphasizing the free food and hotel stays and the ability to travel around the country. Quota was literally like the utmost important thing, you know, quota had to happen for anything good to come to you. Like you had to have your quota not just for the day, but for the whole week. And if you had your quota every day, you had it for the week typically. You had a long time to make 10 to 12 sales. We were knocking from usually 9 to 10 hours a day, typically Monday through Saturday. And sometimes Sundays, if you really just had shit for sales that week, you were still knocking on Sundays. Unless we had to hop to another city for several hours. Like you were seven days a week, like 70, 80 hours a week. And then the pay... We thought it was a lot, but I broke it down and you're working nine to 10 hours a day 
So we were making 20 to $40 a day. And sometimes it was 10 if you had, I think, less than five sales or $5 if you blanked that day and had nothing. And, you know, the whole thing was, well, you don't have to pay for gas. You don't have to pay for motels. You just got to cover your basic needs. But we were paying for gas and hotel. If we didn't have enough cash that day, then we were shorted on rooms. People were sleeping in cars or on the floor or like some people were shorted on pay. And that's great if, if John's going to pay you back in a couple days when we get more cash. But what about that food the next day? Even if you are getting paid every day, it's hard to save money. And it's designed that way. They don't want you to have money to be able to buy your own bus ticket or like have any resources to be able to get out. We were paying for everything. We were literally the ones doing the work to get the cash and then being paid shit for all that work. And we didn't really have a choice on if we were knocking doors or not, unless you were sick and vomiting a whole bunch or severely injured, you were knocking doors. Sometimes even then you were knocking doors. And that was just supposed to be the way you would show your determination and drive to the Jones, the how committed you were to your contest. Like you're out here with a broken leg. You'll really just need to win your points so you can go to college. Tirelessly pushing for sales and conforming to the rules of the crew were worn as badges of honor by its members. Working and living with the magazine crew became a way of life for Amanda. What she didn't realize at the time was she was part of a work cult that used manipulative tactics such as isolation, charismatic leadership, and an us-versus-them mentality to control and influence its members. Cults often create a strong sense of belonging and community, fulfilling one's deep-seated need for connection and purpose. The leaders of this crew used techniques like love bombing. Through love bombing, they created a sort of emotional attachment to the group. This attachment then creates a sense of fear around leaving and the retaliation that comes with it. The leaders of this crew also manipulated and controlled the external influences that crew members were exposed to. This control limited the members' ability of critical thinking, making it challenging to truly evaluate their situation. At this point, Amanda was fully bought in and under the spell of the cult. Some of those red flags that I didn't really realize at the time and didn't even realize when I left were not being able to talk about your life before the road. So nothing personal, like obviously you could say you were from this state and town, but anything personal like your family or who you were, what you did before the crew, it was basically designed to strip you of your identity and be able to easily more form you into what you needed to be as an agent. In that late night that I got there, it was said, like we don't talk about our personal lives and we don't talk about this or that. But in the act of doing so, because, you know, you just got there and you want people to know who you are and you want to know who they are. It wasn't really like, hey, man, you got to stop doing that. It was people would yell in your face, personal. And you just felt like so targeted and just so embarrassed for the fact that you broke a rule. And that's that's by design as well. So you don't do it again. But yeah, it was a lot of yelling at people like, neg, if somebody said something negative in any way. People would point it out so that you were like in the spotlight of, you're doing something wrong. Don't do it again. Even if you had something like a, like you were, I had mentioned, like if you have a headache or you need to go to the bathroom and you're in the car with everybody, it's not like 
hey, car handler, I need to go to the bathroom. Or, hey, car handler, do you got any ibuprofen? It's like tap them on the shoulder and say, can I talk to you? (laughs) It's so elementary. It's like, what the? Yeah. And if somebody said, I got to go to the bathroom, personal, like Jesus, it's like a human function. Like our body just does this. (laughs) And then the other thing, like not being able to be around other new kids or younger agents without the presence of an older agent or manager that was designed so that, you know, if you did have any doubts, you weren't allowed to talk about it with anybody and like get that validation that this was fucked up. Like you were just alone and being fed the stuff that the older agents were already committed to. And they had that oversight over the new kids so that nobody was spreading Spreading truth, basically, they would say spreading lies, but spreading truth and wanting to get out. This sounds great on the surface, like no shit talk or gossip, like no talking about somebody if they're not in the room. Like that's that's a good thing to do. But the way that it was designed there was exactly like to control the narrative. So exactly on par with that whole not allowing anybody to have any doubts about anything or anybody there so that you stayed committed to what it was we were all doing. So you are not you. You are the family or the crew. It's the crew. We had our name. It was the Roadrunners, which isn't a business name. It's not a company name. It's just what we identified as. We were Roadrunners that separated us from all the other magazine crews out there, too. And the company we were under, we were Roadrunners were proud of that and some people even got tattoos of roadrunners and their their crew number and all that because there was our crew and there was one other crew under the head honcho and we were all roadrunners like it was all this like family camaraderie of just a bunch of crazy outcasts from rough backgrounds and whatnot we were always together always with at least one other person there was no like there was no talking about personal and there was no personal time to reflect and that's by design too there's no time to reflect and process what the hell's going on around you and they don't want you to because the second you start doing that then you might want to get out of it the crew leaders isolated members by encouraging a disconnection from friends and family and controlling the flow of information This created a closed social environment that limited Amanda's exposure to new perspectives. This isolation also intensified the influence of the crew's narrative, making everyone conform and comply with the rules. The combination of exploitation, manipulation, deceptive sales practices, and low pay created an environment that aligns with both cult behavior and labor trafficking. The managers knew enough about your story to be able to use it to manipulate you, but your grooming was tailored to you. Like how they approached me early on was different than this guy or that that girl or whatever. So yeah, it's slow and subtle. It's interesting because labor trafficking and sex trafficking, they're both human trafficking. Like you are manipulated or coerced by whoever it is who wants something from you. And then you learn exactly what they're doing to do that to other people. So whether that was us doing that to each other or to the Jones at the door, because we learned very quick and like how to sell these magazines that nobody actually wanted. But like you learn how to become a manipulator and how to coerce people into doing things they don't actually want to do. Like that was the definition of canvas on night one training, getting someone to do something they normally wouldn't 
and feeling good about it. And that's exactly what they were doing to us. But we weren't able to see that being the same exact thing. The people above us were doing what we were doing to the people below us and to the Joneses. But somehow it was different in our minds. Conforming to the rules and expectations of the crew stripped Amanda of her personal identity. The rules were set purposely to suppress her individuality and personal expression. The constant reinforcement and isolation prevented Amanda from forming independent thoughts to the point where she no longer recognized who she was. I was never the one who was so driven to get like the super high sales day or week. Like I just wanted to be done with the day. So I got my quota as quick as possible. And if it was super early, I might knock another drop or two, which was about like a 45 minute increment of time on a certain stretch of streets. But I just wanted to be done. Like some of the people, they would wake up excited to knock doors. And I was just never that person. I really loved meeting cool people around the country, but I was never like hop out of bed excited to get in the car and go knock doors. Like I would extend my mornings as long as possible so that I didn't have to knock doors. But I don't know. It's interesting, too, because it's something that I've had to like unlearn was the separation of like different parts of me because I am more naturally introverted and just chill And to, like, put on this act of being, like, extra excited about winning my contest and, like, being really just kind of cunning and charming just wasn't me. And it was an act that I kind of had to to create within myself to make myself be able to survive in that and to sell the magazines. But, like, that split personality was so weird coming out of And I mean, even up till like five years ago, I was still dealing with it. Like I had such a skewed view of how people function. (laughs) Like everything was so superficial and transactional. And I wouldn't really divulge much information about myself because it felt like it felt wrong to because it was never allowed. So I would be doing exactly what I did at doors and I'd be getting to know every little detail about you so that I could figure you out. (laughs) but never quite being vulnerable enough to be like, this is me. But I also like had lost so much of me and I was so young that I didn't even really have a full sense of who I was. was, It was like such a vulnerable time. You're figuring out who you are as a person at like 18 to 25. So coming out of that and just having such a messed up like view on how, how relationships function or don't function, like it's been so weird to look at who I was before the whole experience and then who I was during it were two completely different people. I loved going out in like nature and just walking around and looking for doors to other worlds as crazy as that sounds. But I also would just sit in my room and write for hours or listen to music or play bass guitar. And I just had none of that. Like you were worth nothing there unless you were able to sell and write your quota. And so having my worth and sense of value be tied to how much I could sell or how useful I could be, and then being treated like crap or just kind of feeling embarrassed and ashamed if I didn't meet up to the expectation, that really just kind of messed with like how I viewed myself and my place in the world afterwards. And it's kind of a recent discovery that you know my sense of worth is not tied to any sort of external success 
or how people view me. Like it's now a thing where it's like, well, I'm here and that's, that's enough. But there it was like, you were nothing like you were nothing unless you proved that you, you know, you were making the money for the crew and writing your quota. There were a lot of things like growing up in my house that were a thing that the road or the magazine crew like reinforced. So I never questioned if it was right or wrong. Like more of the difficult emotions, like being angry, sad, upset, was just never really accepted growing up. And then going on to the crew where no negativity at all was tolerated. That just makes you feel so like weak and shameful and embarrassed for having like very natural human emotions and also reactions to things like having a gun pulled on you at a door and being so freaked out, crying. Like that was at the time that they were patient with me. But if I were an older agent and that happened, like that would have just been like, oh, suck it up. Don't stop being a fucking drama queen, stuff like that. And it happened a couple of times later as well. And at those two points, I'm just like, eh, it's a gun. So you become desensitized to these things that are a threat to your safety. <laughs> and you become like emotionally numb. Even feeling happiness just didn't feel real. Like we were just constantly in like go energetic, enthusiastic mode, just acting happy all the time and positive. No tolerance for any bullshit, any quote unquote drama or being emo there was just no, no tolerance for anything that wasn't happy 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 amanda's focus on being an outstanding member of the magazine crew left no time or tolerance for self-reflection the crew glorified advancement and emphasized the benefits associated with a higher rank they used motivational speeches success stories and rewards to incentivize members to aspire to climb the ladder the competitive atmosphere encouraged crew members to measure their self-worth based on their position and sales quota. The focus on upward mobility gave Amanda a sense of purpose and achievement. So I wasn't quite a manager. So like you start out as your new kid and then you have to prove yourself by getting your roadrunner, which is your first eight sale day. But then after a while, if you get somebody who you hire, or as me, I was like, the only girl who was able to train, we finally hired another girl and I was her trainer. And so you start training people and then you move up to car handler, which is you're driving people out. And then you move up to spur handler, which is you're taking yourself and four or five other agents to a town split off or spurred off from the, the main crew. So you're kind of running your own mini crew for like five days to a week. So that's where I was. And that was all just by me writing quota and training agents to write their quota and being an enforcer of the rules and the life and, and all that. And yeah, like you feel the, the respect and you feel valued and needed. And that's exactly what, what kept me is, I mean, I came from a home where I felt like I wasn't, you know, it didn't matter if I was there or I wasn't. And to go to a place where these people see like quote unquote see me and value me and you know there is the excitement and adventure but like it was some it was a, a feeling that i was seeking and to keep moving up it just kept fueling my need for like being useful being worthy being valued every cult has a charismatic leader at the top and this magazine crew was no exception 
At the top of the magazine crew pyramid was a successful businessman who Amanda calls Vinny. Vinny started the cruise back in the 1960s and lived in a sprawling Florida estate. His lifestyle was the promised pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. The narrative was that if you worked hard and were as smart and dedicated as Vinny, you too could lead a life such as his. Once a year when we were passing through that area, we got to hang out at Vinny's house and and kind of like take advantage of the amenities like the spa and all that and the home theater. So we got to like experience it. So it made it real, even though it wasn't real. Like we, we enjoyed taking advantage of the amenities, but like the whole idea of it being, you know, realistic by running a magazine crew was pretty far off. Still to this day, people highly res- like they respect this guy. And it drives me nuts. (laughs) He was just a criminal dude. And there is no saying anything against it because you will get eaten alive. It's like that's where the cult part of the crew comes in. Because, you know, I've talked to people who sold magazines on other crews outside of this guy and our little pocket of mag crew world. And there wasn't that culty atmosphere like it was on ours. It, It was more of the labor trafficking, less cult. And ours was just like an equal mix of both because we did have the guy at the top that we all basically worshipped and his wife. And our crew songs that we would sing in the back of the car to get motivated, a lot of them were about like how awesome he was and just crazy. When a cult has songs dedicated to their leader, it serves as a powerful tool for indoctrination and reinforcement of group identity. The songs create devotion, a sense of unity, and further manipulate the emotions of the members. The cult behaviors of the magazine crew manipulated Amanda into staying for over three years. There were many times that she thought about leaving, but she was never able to take the leap. It wasn't until the crew passed through her hometown that she had an epiphany. The end of my time was just a big buildup of everything. Like, I wish I still had the journal that I kept on the road, but I threw it out because I was ashamed of it. (laughs) But it would be really cool to see the insights of, like, where my thoughts were. So I can't quite remember my thoughts around, like, if there was anything specific, but I, like, very vividly remember how it felt, like, that month or two leading up to when, that's probably two months, because we were, it was about the start of Ohio and Indiana, when things started going downhill for me and downhill means like there was no me keeping in my like distress. Like I was having mental breakdowns almost every day, at least a few times a week and like not writing my quota. And I was able to visit home still, which surprises me because like if I saw someone in that state, I would have been like, Uh, we're just going to skip where you're from and hop to the next city. But, you know, that's the thing too, is I was able to visit home before that, like a few times. So, but, and I always went back. So I think they thought maybe I was just going to come back and just needed a little break. But yeah, just that, that whole month or two leading up through the Midwest, even though I knew I just could not go on, I was still so torn on actually leaving So I was at home for that last day and just trying to figure out, like, what the hell am I going to even do here? It's still in my mind, like, there's nothing for me here and nobody wants me here. And But I also knew I could not go back to knocking doors and living that life and feeling the distress and the emotions and freaking out every day. 
so I did make the choice and it sounds insane, but a frog jumping across the road helped solidify my choice because my friend and I were driving down a gravel road. This little froggy jumped across the road and almost got squished. And I'm like, that's a sign. Like literally in that moment, I was like, what the fuck do I do? And this little froggy just hops. So I go back home and I look up (laughs) frog symbolism and it was something along the lines of like change and a new time in your life and adapting to whatever. And I'm like, yep, I gotta, I just gotta, I gotta cut the ties. Even if it was just a stupid coincidence, like I found it to be like, it was a sign to me. So my friend, my best friend from high school drove me out. She drove me to the hotel because I did not want to leave my stuff there. Like I wanted my things back and I had to face John and tell him that I was leaving and risk being convinced to stay again. But you know, the second I told him I was leaving, I was going home. He knew because we were literally in my neck of the woods that there was no talking me out of it. Cause I had tried to leave after the first year again, after the second year. And I got the whole, Oh, what the fuck are you going to do back in Nebraska? Nobody wants you there. You know, you're, you've got so much potential, you know, you're not that far off from being a junior manager and getting your own crew. So I stayed, but I was hundreds of miles away from home, but this time in my home, home area. And it went from that whole trying to convince me to like straight up anger and just being pissed off about it. And he was very rude to me. And I was crying because it was emotional, like it was emotional for me. Like my my mind was drained that whole day of just being so torn. And like, I did have friends and we were like a, I mean, we lived together, like lived with these people for three years. So of course I'm going to miss them. And the dude's telling me I've got no right or reason to be upset. Why the fuck am I crying? And then that ring that I earned for my thousand dollar week, he's like, give me, give me a ring back. Like, what the fuck do you need with it? And like, yeah, what am I going to do with it? Like, okay, I get that. But like, dude, I earned that. What the hell? But I, I complied. I'm just like, I want to get out of here. Here's my ring. And then Jimmy comes out and I don't really feel bad. I, I, I'm glad I left, but like the, the hurt on his face, it made it so much harder, like to see him be that upset that like I'm leaving. And I can't remember if I hugged him, but I'm pretty sure I hugged him and just walked down the stairs, got in the car. And then we drove away and it was like a light switch shut off. And it was like a weird mix of relief and also just like nothingness. Like there was just nothing left in me. Amanda felt a mix of emotions the day she decided to leave the crew. Breaking free brought her a huge sense of relief. At first, this newfound freedom was accompanied by a sense of emptiness as she had to confront the void left by the absence of the intense structure and belonging provided by the crew. She also didn't realize that what she had experienced was a cult. So when I first left, it was a bit of like apathy for a while and also kind of in a way it was like a withdrawal almost. And I did miss it and I did think about going back, but I just knew I couldn't. So at first I was very just into like talking about it in the way that it was exciting and like I had done that and it was awesome. And then after a while, I don't quite remember the thoughts behind it, but I just shoved that period of my life to the back of my mind and tried to forget about it. And it's interesting because I would joke every now and again if the topic came up that (laughs) magazine crew was a cult. Like it was just a joke. And then it was 
I think 2019 or 2020, I heard Dr. Stephen Hassan on a podcast that I listened to consistently. And he's like the more well-known cult expert. He was a Mooney and now he does a lot of education and awareness around this stuff. I was just listening to everything he was saying and I'm like, whoa, this sounds a lot like the magazine crew. And I didn't think about it a whole lot at first. I just kind of like, huh, interesting. And then he came back on the podcast and I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, holy crap. This is like the magazine crew. The second time I heard it all is when I really started diving into like that cult research. And I found a lot of podcasts on cults and survivors telling their stories. And it was all like very relatable and then very validating and then being able to tie it as well to like labor trafficking and the influence within all of that. It just kind of like, I don't want to say it like, just like hit me in the face one day. It was kind of slow, but like it, it did both. Like it was just like a smack in the face, but it was also, and it still is like a slow process in a way of unraveling it all. Cause there is a lot there and I'm still constantly learning. So I think for me, I wish, and again, it's hard to say this because there weren't as many resources or people talking about it in 2011 when I got out, but I wish I would have taken more time to think about what happened and dissect it. And again, that's so hard to say because there just weren't the resources. But yeah, I didn't really learn right away. I did repeat a lot of my patterns and romantic relationships, business relationships, like places I worked and all of that. So obviously being in this sort of situation is, it's awful, but like there are so many things out there now that can help people feel validated to relate to others and know that they're not the only one and that they're not crazy for people to be able to find other people who've gone through, just like this podcast is a perfect example. Like I've found so many of your episodes validating and like they're totally different stories and experiences, but the cycle of abuse and, you know, coercion and manipulation are so similar wherever you are. But being able to find people to where you don't feel alone and being able to face uncomfortable truths about your past and about yourself, regardless of how disgusting they may make you feel, like you are not that person anymore. So it's better to face it head on rather than deny it or bury it because the longer it stays buried the harder in my opinion the harder it is to come to terms with and and sift through especially if you have patterns leading into similar dynamics it's like more abuse on top of abuse the more it happens the harder to come out of so yeah i i I think it's best to just kind of face things and it's not an all at once sort of thing there is no deadline to healing which when i first started approaching not just this, but other, other things in my life. Like, I'm just like, I just need to be healed. Hurry up. But no, there really is no deadline. Like you will keep on processing this stuff, keep on learning, keep on growing. If you don't and you think you're done, you're healed, something is bound to come your way to show you that there's more work to do. It's been a long healing journey for Amanda, and she continues to educate herself and others about cults and labor trafficking. I asked her what she learned about herself through this experience. I take the time now to, especially if something feels off, it probably is off. So I didn't trust that sickness in my gut before. And now when I feel that, I I kind of gear towards more of like, okay, let's take a step back and not just go full force into whatever this is. 
so I've learned to trust my gut, not just from the magazine crew, but from other things. And, and I think being able to look at things in a different lens and kind of like following the the money is a big one. Like where's the money coming from and who's making the decisions and whatever it is, is a good practice to have that I really didn't ever understand. <laughs> who's making the decisions around here and how many people are involved in that process. And uh, if it's just one person, it's probably not the best organization, group, whatever. And then the other thing is, it's so easy to come out of something like this and think you were just some dumb, naive, whatever, like all these negative labels that you can put on yourself and others can put on you. The big thing is to practice some self-compassion and be gentle on yourself through that healing process. Because when I left, I mean, there was a lot of shame around allowing myself to, to fall prey to that. You know, I just thought, you know, I was just some young, stupid, reckless, impulsive, crazy girl. And now I see, like, I wasn't just a young, stupid girl. Like, I was young and inexperienced. I was only 18. I was a smart kid. I was creative. I was caring, sensitive, like, kind of fantastical. But, like, I wanted to make the most out of life, and I still do. And by reaching out and listening to other people's stories and not feeling alone and feeling validated and everything else that I've learned, I've been able to see myself at that age in a, a new light, in a more real light, just to know how innocent I was at that point. I wish I could hug that like that person now and tell her like everything that I know. It's important to me to speak out about this stuff because there is a lot of bullshit out there. There is also a lot of good out there and just helping people be able to see the difference. Amanda has been able to use her experience as a transformative life event. She discovered that finding compassion for herself during those formative years was a crucial step towards her personal growth. Acknowledging and understanding that everyone makes mistakes, no matter who they are, is a form of freedom. Having self-compassion brings resilience and empowers us to learn from the past rather than being defined by our mistakes. Ultimately, self-compassion paves the way for resilience, personal development, and a more empathetic connection with the human experience. Next week on November 18th, it's International Cult Awareness Day, and I'll be doing a sort of part two to this episode where I talk to Amanda for an antidote episode where we break down cults like what defines a cult, how it's different from a regular toxic workplace, what to look out for in job listings and interviews, and ways to tell if the place you're working is a cult. So look out for that episode next week. You don't want to miss it. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you have a story to share, please go to ToxicWorkplacePodcast.com, click on Be a Guest, and fill out the submission form. Your story will be completely anonymous. All names are changed to protect the employer and the employee. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.